He pushed out through the door. On the black pavement, he was hit by the unmitigated glare of the sun. The red and white pennants hung slack. Beyond the pavement was the midday traffic on the strip, the sun hitting the cars. Bright, refracted gleams everywhere. There was too much to focus on. So that's Conrad. He is the protagonist of Roxana Robinson's latest novel, Sparta. Conrad is a Marine. He has returned home from Iraq after experiencing some terrible events, including the Haditha massacre, at least that's implied. But America has changed. It doesn't quite acknowledge the soldiers who risked their lives, the men and women who returned here with undiagnosed and untreated trauma. So, despite the fact that Conrad has bountiful support from a very loving family, as well as an extremely patient ex-girlfriend named Claire, who Conrad wants to hook up with again, well, Conrad just can't adapt. It's partly his pride. It's partly because he's living in a nation that has become more seduced by technology, pop culture, the vestiges of the illusory American dream. Robinson's novel is not a mere character study. It is a very sharply observed reflection of life in the latter years of the Bush administration, just before the 2008 economic crash. And it is a persuasive portrait in large part because Robinson had gone out of her way to talk with vets and to obsess over the floor plans and to just really get that emotional nature right. We talked about all this in our conversation, as well as Robinson's top secret approach to working on her latest project. But I highly recommend Sparta. It's a book that I read in one sitting. I couldn't stop reading. I was very honored when Roxana Robinson agreed to talk with me. And I think this is a fun conversation because Roxana and I come from entirely different backgrounds. This is very evident when she brings up tennis, and we both have different notions of what that means. <laughs> uh, but we did have a lot of fun, and this conversation reveals quite a bit about her, even though she does indeed play her cards close to her chest. Anyway, if you are listening to this show for the first time, hello there! My name is Edward Champion, this is the Batsagundo Show, and you can listen to more than 500 other shows with writers, filmmakers, artists, numerous other nifty people at www.batsagundo.com. And if you have any cultural news you'd like me to pass along, questions you'd like me to answer, deranged statements you would like me to read on air, feel free to email me at ed at edrants, E-D-R-A-N-T-S dot com. You can also ping us on Twitter at at symbol, B-A-T-S-E-G-U-N-D-O. Please be sure to spread the word about the program. This is how it will stick around. Um, I do want to offer one bit of condolence before we get on to Roxana Robinson, and that is the passing of Ian Banks. Um, Ian Banks uh, passed away after a battle with cancer. Uh, to my mind, he was one of our best living science fiction and just writers in general. And if you go to uh, Reluctant Habits at edrants.com, I have republished a thorough essay on the culture novels. You may want to go ahead and read that and pick them up. He is, was one of the... It's, it's, it's hard to actually refer to the guy in the uh, past tense because he just seems so alive and his books are so alive and I, and I urge you to read them if you can. Uh, he, was, he was a sui generis talent. In any event, on Happier News, here is our conversation with the incomparable Roxana Robinson. Enjoy. Okay, so I am here with Roxana Robinson, who is most recently the author of Sparta. Roxana, how are you doing? 
I'm fine. It's great to see you. It's great to meet you. Uh, I hope that this uh, conversation isn't. Uh, I don't. I hope we don't have to be austere and unadorned during the course of this because of the title of your book. Have, I mean, <laughs> I hope longer's are are valid as far as you're concerned. Totally valid. Okay, so. Um, I wanted to first of all ask uh, about how this book came into being. That's a good place to start. Origin story. Uh, my understanding is that this all started from you reading a front page article in the New York Times in 2005 or 2006. But to my mind, Sparta seems to be more than that. It's almost a response to certain socioeconomic conditions. Because what Conrad, this Marine returning from Iraq, has to go through is very similar to what a lot of unemployed men have to go through. There is also the sort of faint suggestion that this is the great, terrible horror story right before the 2008 economic crash, what with the apartment near the end. So I'm wondering to what extent this became sort of a response to conditions in the latter Bush years and how this tied into your research and sort of getting this massive project started. Just to start off here. <laughs> okay. Um... Yes, as as you as you are aware, it, it came about because I read an article in the New York Times. It was about um, our troops in Iraq and how they were um, given unarmored vehicles in which to drive and to go on patrols with, and how they were being blown up by IEDs and suffering traumatic brain injuries, which were then not diagnosed and treated. I, I don't. In my head, it wasn't part of these economic crisis. I wasn't really focusing on that. And I think when I was when I began to pay attention, it was before that happened. Um, And what I'm talking about really isn't the same as people losing jobs, because this is a kind of transformation. And of course, you're right, that somebody who hasn't a job um, has lost some essential part of himself, or herself, if if um, that's been part of his life up until then. But this is different. Um, going to war, being trained for war, and being at war, and then coming back and being part of a community that has no understanding and no ability to enter into your own experience. That's different. Maybe a way of approaching this question, because there is, in fact, this go-go guy who shows up near the end, there is mention of predatory lending. There is mention of securitization. Leads me to wonder whether when you're taking on any kind of novel project, you need to actually have that sense of place. Because one of the reasons why this book sort of extended beyond uh, a mere character study was largely because I felt very much that I was reliving the last term of the Bush administration. Uh, warts and all, by the way. So so this is why I, I'm kind of asking, I mean, was it really just a matter of talking to all of these vets and visiting, I presume, the VA hospitals to kind of get a sense of time? I mean, how, how, does, how does a sense of time factor into developing this book? Yeah, that's very interesting. You're right. I do want to make sure when I'm writing a book that every part of it works so that I place it. I, and I usually set my books in the very recent yeah. past, a, a year or so. And it's often quite hard to track down exactly what was going on then. We all have a sense of sort of telescopic sense of time. So it's hard to know exactly what happened. But yes, I was very aware of the economy and how this Conrad's generation sort of, sort of swift shifted from um, happy-go-lucky guys to shifting right into that um, bundled assets and the insider trading and all of that, that that sort of turned into a 
an avalanche of bad debt and and bad conscience. Um, and that was, yes, it was part of the way America had been led yeah. and led astray. Um, and one was in Iraq and one was at home. So you're right. You're right. It's just that I didn't think of him as being somebody who was without a job. But certainly you're right about the whole ethos of America during that period. I think the parallel I draw between Conrad's situation and the scenario of many unemployed people of, of both genders uh, is that we are have increasingly moved thanks to the Bush administration, into a culture where those who seek help feel shameful of it, uh, are not permitted to actually uh, pursue it, uh, are prohibited by funds. You're supposed to tough it out. And the parallel I drew between Conrad and and many unemployed uh, people I know who I've been on sort of telephone support with was substantial, especially when he has this terrifying ordeal in the VA hospital where he's told, well, you have to wait three months, and he has a serious problem to, uh, to actually take care of. So this leads me again to sort of go back to this idea of whether looking at a situation, whether it be a heroin addict in cost or whether it be a soldier returning back from uh, Haditha in Sparta, you know, does, does focusing in on, on one angle of, of, of America allow you to, I suppose, tackle its many ills and to expose these kind of common conditions that we're sort of putting our heads in the sand here for? Um, yeah, I'm always interested in consequences. And so when I explore one thing, I am always fascinated to see that there's a kind of a network of fault lines leading out from whatever the central issue is. So that in cost, I mean, it, it's, cost is certainly not an indictment of anything. It's um, it's simply an examination of a problem that's more widespread than I think uh, that I than I understood when I started that project. And in Sparta, um, I was incredibly troubled to understand what we were doing to our troops at the time. I never supported the war. I never thought we should go there. It was more troubling to learn that there were not weapons of mass destruction and never had been. Um, and so. I wanted to bear witness um, to what it was like for one of one of our soldiers to go there and then to come back. And that was going in that that exploration kind of illuminates one part of the American experience. Sure. Well, I mean, on this subject, I'm curious to ask you about the fact that especially the last two books take place in upper and middle class environments and present, as you say, a underexposed issue in both cases. And this leads me to wonder whether you're trying to target a particular type of literary audience who may not, in fact, read the newspapers or the magazines or who may want to keep their heads in the sands. Uh, is it your goal as a novelist to get otherwise uh, erudite people to kind of open their eyes a little bit by setting by, by the socioeconomic uh, uh, setting to, to, to really kind of look into problems that they may not otherwise pay attention to, especially in this culture right now where it's plus one everything and we're supposed to like everything and we're supposed to kind of turn away anytime there's anything that is, you know, unsettling? Um, I don't really have a target audience. I don't think in those terms. I'm a novelist. I'm not a journalist. Um, I'm really not trying to persuade people of anything. I, as I say, I'm just bearing witness. And this particular part of society is the one that I know best, educated people, not particularly rich, but um, who come from modest backgrounds, but they're all educated. That's that's sort of the main connection between the, the all the books that I have written. Um, but am I trying to 
tell a certain audience how to think or to reveal something? Not necessarily how to think, but more just expose their eyes to the fact, look, this problem is not going to go away. These people can actually, they may be in your family. Mm -hmm. They may actually knock upon your door. You can't just continue to read about, I suppose, uh, domestic couples who are committing adultery. You know what I mean? Right. (laughs) Right. Well, yes, I'm not interested in easy targets. So the the problems that, that draw my attention are ones that I find really compelling and really disturbing yeah um and yeah i don't know who my audience is i'm not i'm not trying to reach a particular audience by choosing the people i do to write about but um but they're always subjects that i find really troubling and so if other people do that's great um but but these are things that that become very very compelling to me so you're drawing upon your own background and you're trying to just stay outside of it so that you can constantly understand another aspect of humanity, whether it be drug addiction or, or vets or that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that um, writing, about, writing about subjects you don't know is really important for a writer. Writing about um, circles and communities that are not your own is really risky because you're going to get so many things wrong, so many signals. Um, and so... I'm not saying I would never do it, but it's it's um, I'm much re- more interested in exploring an idea in the way it reveals itself in a community than I am in trying to interpose myself in a community that I don't know. Sure. So let's talk about your the conversations you had with the vets. I mean, Conrad has tons of stories to unrattle to his his family, his girlfriend, who he's trying to reestablish relationships with. Uh, and this leads me to wonder, I mean, I, I didn't know until I re- got to the very end, oh my gosh, she actually talked to all these vets and read the book. So my question to you is, you know, how many stories did you collect from these vets? And what do you do to sort of change them or make it okay so that you don't feel like you're you're stealing another person's story or exploiting a particular person who... Uh, talked about something that was very traumatic for them. I mean, you know, what, what's the equitable balance for you? Or as a novelist, is your attitude, well, hey, I'm a novelist. Everything's fair game. That's a really good question. And it was one I was very conscious of. Um, I always I always explained what I was doing when I talked to somebody. I never used anybody's traumatic experience direct, directly in this book. What happened to Conrad is not what happened to any of the vets I talked to. I did use some of the funny stories they told me. Yeah. To, absolutely. The waiting pool? Yeah. That, that was real. That was, <laughs> it's, drawn, it's from a, somebody's memoir. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, Wait, that, which, not, which, which memoir was that? That wasn't Swilford, was it? No, it wasn't. I, I don't recall that. Which, which one was that? Um, it's called Joker One. It's by Donovan oh, I Campbell. I haven't, oh, I haven't read that one. Yeah, okay. Um, it's more or less that. that. Um, but the story about the, the two guys getting on the airplane with, covered with weapons, somebody told me that, which is, a, I think that's a wonderful story. And, um, there, there are lots that, that people told me for the book, and it, it has nothing to do with their traumatic experiences. They told them because they loved the stories, and I, and I wanted to put them in. But I never, I never used anybody's traumatic experience um, directly, I, because I, just for those reasons, I really think um, I didn't want to violate anybody's trust, sure. and, and that was very important to me. So with that in mind, how do you build a composite character like Conrad? I mean, obviously, you're using your imagination to some degree. But, you know, a journalist will essentially talk to every single person, a good journalist in my view, will talk to every single person and get every little piece of information until they can basically recite chapter and verse. Is this something similar to how you approached Conrad? I mean, how did you uh, get inside that idea of 
a guy who is extremely alarmed by the noise of a garbage can, or I'm sorry, garbage truck, or uh, the white sedan that causes him to go crazy on the highway. I mean, things like this are extremely well observed, and they allow us to actually believe in Conrad. So what do you do to get from these collection of stories to this sense of believability and dimensionality? Um, Somebody else said that, too. Is he a composite character? Um, I don't... I don't know about other novelists, but I don't work that way. That's the way journalists work, yeah. and they think they want to create a character, so they give him this attribute from that person. But that's not how I work as a novelist. I really um, allow the character to sort of create himself. And so certainly I drew on the many stories, that, and there are lots of stories about vets seeing white sedans, or white sedans was the, the car that was used in Iraq. So for lots of people, that was a trigger. That was a kind of a fear trigger and a panic trigger. And driving um, wildly on the highway in order to avoid gunfire was also something people did. Um, but so I felt as if those were sort of common experiences. One of the things that I understood, I came to understand very quickly, was there was no such thing as a single experience that everybody had. Yeah. So people had a complete spectrum of experiences. Some people had a good war, went, were never given a command that, that they found morally unacceptable, were in fights, did well, nobody was lost, and they came home and they feel great about it. Talked to other people who never did anything terrible, but were treated in a way that may, had made them feel kind of cowed and ashamed and came home and couldn't talk to, about it. So that was damaging in a strange um, way that was very hard for them to articulate. Um, so there was a huge variety of experience. I couldn't possibly have created a character that encompassed all of those varieties. So I, I chose Conrad. I got to know his family. This is the way I always write novels. I got to know his family. I got to know his upbringing. I learned to know who he was before he went. Then I learned about what it was like to train as a Marine, um, what kinds of changes were they asked for, of your character. Um, and then I immersed myself in the experience of Iraq. I, as you probably read, I read blogs, I watched videos, I, I um, read everybody's first-person narratives. Uh, I watched testimonies of people who would come back and who were against the war. Listened to stories um, of, by parents of, about suicides, their sons who came home and committed suicide. So um, there was much, much more than I could put into one character. So yeah. Conrad became himself, and he reflected and contained all that. He knew people to whom these other things had happened. It wasn't strange to him, but yeah. he only contained this one, this one channel himself. Did you ever consider, I mean, I'm not sure if going to Iraq was even an option. Uh, did you consider any, you know, or even firing a gun or anything like this? Or did you feel, okay, I'm, I'm reading all this stuff. I'm talking with all these people. I mean, I have to use my imagination to create Conrad to make him a, a living, breathing character on the page. But I can't fully inhabit it in my real life because it needs to be some sort of barrier so I can actually have persuasive fiction. How, how did this work? I mean, you, any, anything along those lines? Yeah, yeah, I was dying to go to Iraq. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was obsessed by it. Um, but the whole time I was working on this, we were at war with yeah. Iraq, and you that's, really—that's a bit of a downside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there were these the 
State Department had these huge statements, do not go to this country, we are at war. It's like writing about a novel about Syria right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you just don't go. And so, and I kept thinking, am I brave enough? Should I just go? Because I know reporters go. But I didn't have any um, credentials. There was no way the State Department was going to actually let me go. They couldn't, you couldn't just sign on as an embedded novelist. <laughs> embedded novelist, right. Um, I did find one archaeological tour late in this process. And I guess we we had left by then. Um, it was still extremely dangerous. It was the area near Haditha, so there were. It was a good place for archaeology, and the uh, company that took people said it was completely safe. And it was ten days, and I kept thinking, ten days, wheels up, wheels down. I just go, and I'll come back, and it'll be fine. And then I kept thinking, but what if it's not fine? <laughs> Whatever, we're stopped by a bunch of guys with machine guns. Hey, it's adventure. <laughs> it's a, and here are all these American tourists, yeah. and uh, and I I couldn't I I actually couldn't bring myself to tell my husband that I was going to go to her. You, you, you kind of kept this from your husband. <laughs> oh, I kept almost everything from my husband. <laughs> oh, so there's all these like potential plans in a parallel universe. You would have. Oh, well, wow. <laughs> oh, while I'm doing research, I he knew what the subject was. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But um, while I was writing costs, I mean, I used to leave the apartment. If he left the apartment, I would leave and go to a meeting, an NA meeting. Yeah. With, and I never told him. It, it's not because it's not because I didn't want him to know. It's that um, it has to be, I have to be alone in this world yeah. while I'm doing it. I, I never told anybody what I was working on, any, anyone but him. None of my friends, none of my agents, no, nobody knew. Huh. Has it always been the case for yes, you where you yes. just don't tell anybody yes. anything? Huh. Yes, it has to what, be. How, why did you develop this particular strategy? Um, most writers have it, and I can only compare it to, have you ever played tennis in one of those inflatable uh, courts that are held? I mean, I played tennis, well, but you know, inflatable You, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those things that have bubbles. Yes. So they depend on the air pressure, and if you puncture them... Even a small pinprick. A small pinprick. Yeah, for you. Because some novelists actually will kind of give you a sense of what it's going on, but they just will say, it's a novel set in the 1920s. And that's that's it. Yeah, you can't say that. But uh, yes, and I remember there was a wonderful interview with Deborah Solomon and Ian McEwen, and she said, can you tell us what you're working on now? And he said, no. And she said, "Could could you just tell us if it's set in contemporary times? And he said... Yes, it is. And then he said, damn, now I have to start over. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, that's that's exactly right. If you give out any information, it just, it can cause the deflation of this sense of privacy and solitude and the tension that you've created around this. Because you have to, you can't talk about what you're the tension that you find there because it, it, it vanishes. So what happens when an editor or your agent says, hey... Roxana, what you got next? Or do they not ask that question? Because they, they know. They know. They know okay. very well. Yeah. I mean, my agent asked me asked me something, and I told her when I'd when this next book will be set. But that's all I tell her, yeah. and she knows that. Yeah. Okay. Most people and, and are there's used no to. there's no timetable because I mean, you could take it could take a couple years, it could take five years. They, it's just understanding that you will work on this novel as long as you can, and you're in this kind of complete hermetically sealed place. Yes, that's okay. right. Okay, that's 
interesting and very admirable in our very sherry culture too. It's not. It's not I mean, admirable. People can't do that anymore. Almost, you it's, know. It's yeah. not a question. It's not admirable. It's self self uh, preservation. It's not admirable. You would say it, no. It's it's like saying it's admirable that you feed yourself. It's this is a this is a method of self preservation. Okay. Well, I think it is admirable that well, you do breathe you. oxygen. I think it's a very impressive. <laughs> Card trick. You Thank know. you. I'm glad you noticed. Um, <laughs> so, um, of all the places in Westchester County, you set the feral home in Katona, New York, which I discovered you had actually resided in. Um, I, I'm wondering, does going, does setting, uh, did setting this particular book in part where you actually live, does it, does it kind of help you to get a greater accuracy? Do you need a certain kind of home truth in order to get to a broader truth that's afflicting the nation? How, how does this work? Um, it's a question of focus and particularity. And for me, houses are really, really important in books. Um, Marilyn Robinson would agree with you. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I describe the houses always very, very precisely. And, and the mood of the house and the shape of it and the way it looks is very, very important. And this was a house that we lived in for 25 years. I loved it very much. I loved that property. And I just thought, um, and I wanted Conrad not to live in New York. I wanted him to live somewhere outside New York. And I thought, why not? This will be a chance for me to celebrate a a house that I loved and a a landscape that I loved. So that allowed me um, to write about a place that I occupied very intently and I could describe with great familiarity. So the floor plan was pretty much exact? It it, it is exact. That's the house that we lived in. But I, and I tell my writing students, I mean, if I, what was the house I was... There was a house in uh, This Is My Daughter. They build a house. And I drew the floor plan so that I always knew when somebody was going upstairs which direction they were going, which, where the landing was. Because you can get I, – when I teach writing, I tell my students, you have to know where the, what the geography is. Yes. And I had one student. I said, you know, th- this house feels like – the upstairs feels like one house and the downstairs feels like another house. And she said, yeah, it is actually. I drew on two different houses for them. I said, well, you can't do that because it confuses the reader. So I think for me, um, domestic geography is extremely important. I have to know exactly what the house looks like. So I have to know exactly how it's laid out. So how about Gogo's apartment and also the girlfriend's apartment with the infamous towels? I mean, did you? <laughs> how did you know the floor plans of those? Did were these based off of friends' apartments or apartments you may have actually imagined? Did you actually draw floor plans for those? I'm curious. Um, I know the floor plans for both of those apartments. I don't know if I drew them. They're very simple. They're yeah. small apartments. Um, they were not drawn on particular apartments, but they I certainly know what those apartments are like. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, actually, I did draw go-go's to make sure that I knew exactly where each room was. Yeah. Okay. I actually have to ask you about this because this is something I can completely relate to. Uh, Conrad has some pretty miserable experiences in restaurants. <laughs> and and I, I love this in large part because when I moved to New York from California about six years ago, I was sort of astonished at the whole restaurant culture. You never get the seat that you need or that you actually reserved in advance. You're treated so terribly often. And you and I, I in California, people are more chill. It's a little less class-driven. It's more egalitarian. <laughs> You're like, hey, how's it going? I haven't seen you. you know, and here it's like, yeah, no, there is a clear demarcation. And Conrad experiences this in very catastrophic terms two times. The first at the very beginning where 
he's meeting with his parents and he sits in the middle of this yeah. restaurant and there's all this sound and they can't concentrate and then of course there's this regrettable date with the bag hitting his, his face and all that and then of course he meets his father and he does in fact have a acceptable restaurant experience <laughs> in a sushi restaurant but I wanted to ask you about this because I, I found this to be strangely funny at the same time as I was also feeling for Conrad does this relate any particular uh, does this relate to any particular sort of restaurant anxieties you may have <laughs> I mean, any kind of specific commentary on the New York restaurant culture or anything like that? I, I'm the only guy who's probably going to ask you this, but I, it did strike my strike strike me quite uh, prominently during my read. That's funny. Um, I don't think of it in those terms, but I do think that people have conversations a lot in restaurants, and so I mean that's a place where you're both sitting down. There's nothing else on your mind, and so it's a very useful venue for dialogue for exchanges and and so and rest you know we're a very foodie culture and so restaurants are really important so people always have opinions let's go to this restaurant because it's a fish restaurant or it's italian or it's a sushi or um and and i'm actually not a foodie at all so in a restaurant i you will usually forget the name of it my husband will say what was that great restaurant i say i have no idea i mean what did we talk about who were we with yeah and he'll say i don't know but we had that wonderful fish i say i i i can't remember on those terms so i i do remember restaurants very specifically because of the their layout how much noise there is what the waiters are like sometimes the waiters it's class driven and the waiters are definitely higher on the scale than you are and sometimes they're not and sometimes they're sycophantic and sometimes they're rude so all of that stuff is what interests me and that's that's so that's kind of delicious for me to, yeah. to write about any restaurant so it gives you an opportunity to uh, have conrad's poor anxieties and and, and his uh, fears revealed because of this this hierarchy okay. yeah huh and that is interesting that you uh you don't remember the name, but you remember the layout of a place. Yeah. Do you remember the physical location it is in the city at all? Generally. Or? I'll yeah. say, oh, yeah, that was in the East 50s, right? Huh. But I don't remember. And my husband will say, well, you know, they got that great review. I never read restaurant reviews. And he'll say, people are always saying, oh, have you heard about this new restaurant? I've never heard about any new restaurant. <laughs> wow. So this explains probably why you named uh, your protagonist after one of the great uh, imperialist writers of the late 19th, early 20th century. <laughs> A good sort of uh, unforgettable name, Conrad. You know? Yeah, I th- I really yes, it does relate to Conrad. Yeah, uh, yeah, just because he was kind of kind of aligned himself. He sort of set himself up as a man of iron. Yes. So I wanted to keep that in my mind as I was writing that there was this kind of landscape of male. Mm, what is it? It's a kind of way of presenting yourself to the world that, that gives no quarter. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's interesting, too, about him, um, there, there, are, well, there are a number of things that are interesting, but uh, the fact that he has to, he's constantly beating himself up because he has to spend, you know, so much time catching up. And, and by catching up, that involves the last four years of culture that he missed. Uh, you know, elements like like this, he he really get a sense of how displaced he is. But it also is a great way of for people who did not serve to actually understand what that life was like. And and I'm wondering how you found the right moments to to relate to uh, possibly a non military reader about what it is to go off for four years and come back and then be greeted by people with cell phones, people who uh, are reading uh, stories in the newspaper that are oddly, uh, that are filled with just trite 
celebrity reality TV nonsense. Uh, you know, how did how did that particular um, angle work its way into into this? When did you know that this was the way? Oh, I see. I could possibly. Uh, present Conrad in this way so that readers who, you know, this, so that all readers can actually have access to his, to his inner thoughts and all that. How, how did this come about? Um, it's not something I plan. It's just that once I um, made my way inside Conrad's mind, I saw the world through his eyes. And so he's waiting for his girlfriend and he picks up a gossip magazine and it's, he realizes how, what a large presence this magazine has in the American landscape and how small a presence he and his troops, his platoon have had. And it's depressing for him. So it's just it's just as I'm in his mind walking along the street and he's he's seeing the things and we're watching them together. It wasn't it's not something I plan. Yeah. But it, it, I mean, for me, I think that the book almost offers its own version of the American mythology of Vietnam vets returning back from the war and allegedly being spent upon. Um, that's, you know, that's been some people, Obama said that it actually happened. Uh, other books have said there has never been a single incident of that, but it is a mythology or a legend that still is in the national psyche. In this, it seems to me that just being disregarded, being invisible after you have done uh, really terrible work uh, things that you often had no control over, things in which you know you were told that you were basically doing, uh, being the good American soldier, and you find out no, actually there are, aren't any WMDs there. I mean, the the thing that um, is the absolute parallel to that is that whole scene on the beach where you have that guy say, "Oh, really? You think that fucking matters to me?" <laughs> I mean, it's this devastating moment after he is basically given his name, his rank, almost his serial number. And this is very much the mindset of people. Uh, you know, I, was this sort of a recurring um, uh, theme that all the vets talked to you about? Or, or did, were you actually kind of trying to align uh, the Iraq veteran in some way with the Vietnam veteran in the sense that this is how we treat the men who served our countries? Why, why do we do this? Um, I was very aware of, of the story of the Vietnam veteran. And I, but I think that um, what's, what's happened with this war is everybody understands that we did the wrong thing by blaming the Vietnam vets when they came back. And so the corollary, the corollary is people come up and say, thank you for your service. And they yeah. do that all the time. And it's mindless. I, it's, it's a perfectly generous, kindly gesture. But for the vets, it's... <laughs> It's like saying, have a nice day. There, there's no way for them to respond. They can say thank you, but um, it feels completely inauthentic to them, and it's useless. So, but, but the civilians don't know any other way to, to respond. So what's the authentic way of, of thanking them or expressing our gratitude, or is there? There didn't seem to be. I mean, that was one of the things that struck me. So many people said, no one talks to you about it. I mean, a lot of the vets, once I finally was able to reach them, said, no one else has asked me. I said, would you like to talk about it? No one else has asked me. And I think it's because civilians are afraid. They don't know how to ask, and they don't know what they're going to hear. And they don't know if that's intrusive. Yeah. So civilians really don't know how to deal with it. They also don't know that it matters. Yeah. Um, so I was trying to, uh, you know, I was trying to listen to their stories and, and aware of the fact that on the one hand, people were saying no, saying no one asks. And the other hand, if they do ask, 
uh, vets are often resentful. Yeah. You know, how can you ask me this? And, and people also also say stupid things. Did you kill anyone? Yeah. Which is really not the right way to open a conversation <laughs> with a vet. Um, <laughs> you know, but that's but civilians just don't know how to enter into the to that territory. Yeah. And so they're sort of frozen and silenced, and the vets are resentful and feel invisible. It's a, it's a hard, I don't know what the solution is. When you first started talking with vets, did you experience a lot of awkwardness in terms of how to get them to open up to you? I mean, uh, in terms of how to communicate to them uh, this problem. What, 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 when, when were you actually uh, able to strike a, an accord with a, a vet when you were talking with them? How, how, I mean, what was the first experience of talking to the vet like uh, in this in this for this book I'm just curious um, the best connection I made was some, somebody gave me the name of a writer who had written a book about it and he and I I think he just on faith gave my gave several people my email or gave me theirs and so and and he obviously said good words for me and I think I talked to them by phone first and then asked if they'd be willing to see me and I wrote out a list a list of questions asking them, you know, when they were born, where they were grew up, if they had military families, how their parents had felt about this, where they served, um, what uh, what branch of the armed forces they'd been in, where they had been, so that we could just have a conversation first, and then, you know, they could get a sense of me and the way, the kind of questions I was going to ask. And I, I said, you have complete control. Uh, you don't have to answer any question that makes you uncomfortable. You don't have to answer. Um, you can stop anytime you want. And um, it's just, it's, uh, you have as much control control as I do. During these email, email volleys, were there any sort of exotic dancers that one of their friends was actually going out with oh, somebody did tell me that story isn't <laughs> okay. that a great yeah, yeah, story that, that thing ends up con- continuing throughout the book it's just we get a latest update once uh, conrad is firing off some emails and he's sort of flip about it and they actually take his advice literally um but that's interesting too because uh you know when conrad late in the book is trying to get his act together he has nothing but his military training to resort to in order to uh, to find out how to solve his problems. And it's both, again, it strikes this kind of comic but also tragic uh, note because uh, here was a guy who had uh, steeped himself in the classics before he went into, into the service. And, and I'm wondering, it, did you talk with anybody who was like super accomplished and had this very problem that no matter how intelligent and accomplished and skilled and talented you are, if you go through the training and if you go through serving, that's all you're really going to have left because they, you just get broken down through through that act of, of serving or doing a, going through a tour or anything like that? Or? It really depended on the experience. Yeah. And, and in my experience, um, the higher you were in rank the better time you had because you had more control over what you were doing and the worst time was had by the enlisted men. Sure. Um, so I talked to people who both, both kinds, people who had a good war and came back and felt fine about it. And people who had a terrible time and, and felt completely broken. Um, wait, what's your question? So, uh, I think the question- oh, they, they were left, they were only left with this idea of, yeah. of um, 
that was true throughout. And so that there, when there were people who were higher up in rank and did experience some, something traumatic, they had no, no better resources to fall back on than, than anybody else. And there is this ethos of never complain, never admit that you're frightened or, never apologize. or hurt. And so it was very hard for anybody to admit to PTSD. Yeah, yeah. So I also want to talk about Claire, who, you know, I think she's gotten a bad rap during this conversation, so let's bring her into this. Um, for, for long stretches of the book... She tolerates Conrad's aggressive behavior uh, in a way that, to my mind, was exceptionally patient. And uh, indeed, more patient than one would expect for someone who is trying to reestablish a relationship that has gone south, uh, you know, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, We know that there's some mysterious gentleman on Wall Street that she's seeing other men, um, but... I think that there's a risk with characters like this uh, of them becoming emotional doormats. Uh, They end up reacting to the needs of the main character. I think with Claire, um, we see a bit of her inner life, and what we see of it is largely from Conrad's perspective. But I was curious to ask you about this. You know, is it okay for you to have a character like this who... uh, who actually is essentially reacting to the main character when they're a side character like this. How do you balance the risk of someone who serves as an instrument while also being dimensional in some way? Some readers might hypothetically uh, look to someone like Claire and say, well, I would have liked to know more about her. So, you know, what is your answer to this conundrum? I'm curious. Um, Claire was an interesting problem uh, for me as a novelist. She, she... I mean, there were certainly lots and lots of stories about girls who broke up. I mean, yeah. breakups during when the men were overseas. But Claire was uh, close to Conrad's family, good friends with his sister, and also loved him as a friend. So she wasn't in a position. She's not as though she, they were. They only were lovers. They had been close friends for a long time. She wouldn't have stayed absolutely faithful to him for four years. She and she made that clear. She saw other people, but she couldn't. She really actually loved him. So she and she was. A, and once she saw how fragile he was, she didn't dare just cut cut him off and say it's over. So she felt she had to keep on some kind of supportive relationship. I don't think she's a doormat. She's simply trying, she's struggling to do the best she could for Conrad without sacrificing her own life. But she does put up with far more than one would expect in that particular situation, even though we also understand that she is burgeoning with empathy. I think the many phone calls that she leaves to Conrad especially elucidates that. But uh, I didn't mean to suggest that she was a doormat, but I, but I do feel that she is nevertheless, if you look at it from, a, from, a, from Conrad's position and from the position of the narrative, she is very much a kind of instrument to fuel the, the plot. It's very clear to me that you want to make all of your characters dimensional, but at the same time, a narrative has to be pushed forward. So I'm sort of asking how, how you deal with that dilemma. It's, it's a very tricky tightrope, I think. Yeah, as I say, she, she just couldn't, she couldn't bring herself to cut herself off from yeah. Conrad. She just she felt too strongly attached to him. She felt fr- from early on she felt it's not this is not working. Yeah. But she she was afraid of what it would the damage it would do to Conrad to break it off. So it wouldn't have worked if she hadn't had her own life, her own apartment, her own job, her own friends, many of whom he didn't know. So she maintained that for herself, but. 
um, she was definitely a big part of Conrad's life, and she couldn't, she couldn't, she didn't dare cut that, sever that. Did you ever talk to any macroeconomics professors for this? There's a macroeconomics <laughs> class who uh, that that that. Uh, that seemed to me one of the most uh, eccentric ways to get ahead that Conrad had actually chosen. And, uh, and again, it kind of goes back to my theory earlier in the conversation. I was saying, ah, Roxana, you're moving everything towards 2008. <laughs> so uh, how did that come about? Um, well, uh, you know, part of the research I did was to find out what graduate schools would require of a classics major. And so in there, this was one of them, they required some kind of economics course. And so I went to the Columbia um, course list and chose one and found out who taught it and where it was taught and what the um, textbooks were. And, <laughs> did and you read any of that? No, I did not. <laughs> Because there's that one problem in there that I actually spent a good, uh, an amazing amount of time actually trying to solve. Oh, I was the like, problems from like, the GMAT. I was yeah. feeling like, like God, am I really that stupid? I mean, the, I, the, the, the second question I got immediately, but the first one I was like, you know, because you don't, of course, provide the answer. So <laughs> people like me come along. Oh, I think I can answer this, and oh, well, it's actually kind of tough, you know. Yeah. After so many years. No, those those were drawn from um, study study books yeah. for the, the GMATs. Did you change it a little bit for the first question? Because I think it's—I felt that like you had taken a GMAT question and adjusted it a little bit, so it made a little less sense. I wasn't—I don't remember doing that. <laughs> okay. I think it was directly drawn. Got it. Um, they I, were impossible. Those questions. Um, so I wanted to actually uh, talk about this. I know you've done a George O'Keefe biography, and to my mind, Conrad had a few of O'Keefe's qualities. I mean, he's very much a loner. He, uh, he's trying to actually move ahead, as George did, and then suffers a breakdown of sorts. Uh, and this leads me to ask whether major figures in uh, American culture often unanticipated, there are often unanticipated inspiration for some of these novels. Have you, have you seen George O'Keefe kind of pop up in some of your characters <laughs> ever, since, ever since you wrote that biography, out of curiosity? Uh, let's see. I, she, she's a character I very much admire. Um, and so her admirable traits probably are part of my, they've probably been internalized. I certainly wasn't conscious of drawing her character into, into Conrad's. Um, but there's certainly things that I remember that she wrote or said that I, that I will never forget that will be part of my own consciousness. Did writing biographies help you to write more vivid fiction, would you say? Uh, how, how, How did that, how did that help you? I have... I have no... I mean, the two are not as far apart as you would think. Yeah. When I write a novel, I do do a lot of research. So it's still... I'm, I'm incorporating material, factual material, into the narrative the way you do in a biography. Um, and in some ways, writing the biography of O'Keefe was really a, a dream come true. It's the, I had the characters, I had the narrative. All I had to do was to write the storyline. Um, and it was all done for me basically yeah, narrative already exists so narrative you don't have to already exists as much <laughs> yeah, yeah so all i had to do was to bring it to life um so there's there's a certain there's a large overlap um it just is a question of um you know doing do, I, I do research for did research research for both and i would try to animate the characters for both so there are um there's certainly similarities i don't i, I don't have any plans to write another biography but um yeah they were they're similar. Yeah. How did uh, Conrad's concern for cleanliness come about? I mean, he's extremely hostile to this. Here's a guy who sees stubble and sees red. 
Uh, I mean, you know, here's a guy who like is he, there's this one shaving scene. Um, which I just thought was like amazing. He was so obsessed with being completely clean, and then of course he can't actually go at home when the cleaning lady is there. And he also has this amazing ability to make his bed immaculately. Um, you know, it's almost as if on some level this is the one kind of identity he has left. But I, but at the same time, the way that he projects it upon the outside world is rather interesting, and it's actually. Strangely enough, for all of his anger, not nearly as bad as his other associations. Uh, was this a way of uh, kind of giving Conrad a little bit of a break, or at least allowing the reader to kind of get to know Conrad? Give, I mean, he needs everyone needs a quirk, right? <laughs> um, well, it's actually part of the marine culture, yeah. and they're extremely rigorous about personal appearance, and that's one of the ways that they train people to understand that their lives are different now. That that everything about their their appearance is important and it's regulated and you never are unshaven and your belt buckle must align with the seam in your pants and everything has to be perfect. And so that's one of the ways it felt um, that Conrad felt betrayed. He'd been following these rules and he'd been led to understand that they were important and he comes back home and nobody is following any rules yeah. and and there doesn't there don't seem to be any consequences and it's enraging. Where did you get some of the call and responses uh, from <laughs> out of curiosity? Was They're the, great, aren't they? Yeah, no, I, I love them all. You know? <laughs> and, and you're actually very careful to note that this, in fact, was stolen from black culture as well and slave culture. And so uh, I'm wondering, um, you know, what research you did. Uh, did did you did you actually have a few calls and responses that didn't that didn't make the cut, so to speak? Or? Oh yeah, there's yeah. a lot of material. There's a huge body of material. Yeah, um, a lot of that came from looking online, and and I think that was they were also in a lot of the first person narratives I read. Um, and I hadn't, I, some of that was observations that I made myself and some were, were, were drawn on some of my observations were drawn on other. Um, I, I can't remember if I read any ethnologists on the subject, but it was, it's a very rich subject. It's really fascinating to me. Yeah. How about uh, Conrad also has this tendency to look at people based off of physical description, you know, buzz cut and I think there's about like eight different types of people. He never actually bothers to know their name. And you immediately get the sense of how the guy sort of scopes out something. And then like immediately, this person is dehumanized into buzz cut. I mean, you know, did some of the vets tell you along the course of your research that uh, this is how they dealt with strangers? <laughs> you know, looking at them and, oh, hey, he's mustache man. Or, <laughs> You know, sheeny, sweaty, bald guy, just to point to myself. <laughs> you know, how, 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 how did this come about? Um, it's not, it's it's to do with rage. Yeah. So it's the depersonalization. It's also a novelist's device to, to let me, I mean, I don't know the name of these characters. And so it's just a way to identify this person so that Conrad can act out his rage against him. Yeah. Um, he could dehumanize them and then he could be angry. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Huh. So, Heller McAlpin in the Washington Post, she raised this minor reservation, which I uh, wanted to actually get your thoughts on. She points to how Conrad's parents wouldn't have known what he was going, would have known what he was going through, you know, but they don't seem to in this book. I mean, you've got Conrad's mother, Lydia, she's a therapist, and yet her son is clearly cracking. I mean, near the end, there is a moment where this is addressed, but I, I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, you know, was it sort of reflecting the idea that we're largely blind to what vets are going through? Or did you want to sort of kind of intimate to the reader, well, 
when Marines come home, they keep their problems close to their chest, and uh, it may actually not be easily identifiable even to family members or friends or close ones or loved ones. Why, why didn't you, uh, why, why weren't they a little bit more proactive, I'm curious, the family, in, in, in helping out poor Conrad? Um, they actually were as proactive as he would let them. Uh-huh. And so throughout the book, Lydia is calling him. She calls him all the time. She writes him every day. She writes him emails. She sends him, I think she sends him letters. Um, he rejects all of that. Her, his father tries to reach him. He rejects everything. So Lydia is deeply frustrated. She's frightened. She's anxious. Um, but for two reasons. One one is I didn't want to re- replay the family dynamic and cost, sure. which was a, a woman, a mother trying to reach her son who's in trouble. So I, I, I wanted to stay away from that. But also, this is very um, much a dynamic of families with returning vets. The vets will not allow themselves to be helped by the families. And the fact that she was the therapist made it worse for her in that she under, she did understand what we, he was going through. He, she was very frightened by it. Um, but it made him much more resistant to her. He, he knew that she was a therapist, and so yeah. he wasn't going to tell her his problems. And they don't want to talk to civilians. Yeah. They don't want to talk to a civilian therapist. They only do feel that they can be safe in a military environment. So when he finally realized that he needed help... He would only go to the VA. He, he refused yeah. the help that his parents wanted to offer him. And there, there is heart-rending testimony on, given by parents whose sons committed suicide about them trying to reach them. And the son saying, yeah, th- I'll, th- I'll call you back, or that's a good idea. And then the next day, they don't answer the phone. And they just they can't do it. But on a certain level, he knows the horror of what he's been through because very early in the book Ollie is saying hey I want to enlist too his younger brother and he says no you, I order you not to enlist and, and it's this really stirring moment and, um, and eventually uh, this pays off late in the book but, but, it, but it seems to me that I think um, I mean I, I don't know if I'm as uh, bothered by it as Heller was but, but, it, but it does seem to me that you know you've got, a, you've got your, your son has come home your brother has come home. He's he's drastically changed. He's shouting more. He's angrier. Maybe this also might just be a situation where, because it's close third person, um, we're inside his head, and it, and what's inside his head is perhaps not as visually extreme to those who are observing. I, I don't know. Maybe that's that's. And this is we're being extremely nitpicky here, just to be clear. Well, it, yes, you're right. It's it's more clear to you because you can see inside his yeah. head than it is to his parents. But also, you can't get a 26 year old healthy man to you. You can't have an intervention if he's not buying it. Yeah. And so the fact that his family was all was trying to help him. Ollie was on the sending him emails every day. When are you going to come up? You know, what are you doing? Yeah. Jenny is saying you can always come here. You can't be a drunk here, but you know, she was uh, she was ready. He knew at any moment to help him. His parents were. So it's not as though he wasn't being offered help. It was that he absolutely wouldn't take it. And and as I learned in doing research for cost, interventions are very difficult to yeah. make work, and you can't just decide that you're going to fix your 26-year-old son. You just can't do that. Actually, I'm going to give you another reason. It just occurs to me to defend the parents uh, 
liberalism, they do actually loosen that whole, you know, hey, you can't have sex when we go for the family vacation. So there is that as well. And he and uh, and Conrad learns uh, quite alarmingly that, oh, wow, we, we can actually do this. So there's one to support the kind of myopia of the parents, I suppose, or the fact that they don't actually don't intervene. So I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll bring that. Actually, one other question. You, the dad is named Marshall. Was he named after the Marshall Plan? No, he wasn't. No, okay. no. He wasn't. And I didn't think until afterwards that it's, it actually refers to the word martial as in yeah. martial arts. Uh, okay. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't have used it actually if I <laughs> thought of that. But no, it's nothing to do with the martial plan. Okay. Well, on the martial plan, I think that's a very silly note to end the conversation <laughs> on. Roxana, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to chat with you. It was great to read this book. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's a pleasure to talk to you. With that baby.